Hi everyone, welcome to Frankly, the energy podcast for founders. I'm your host, Siobhan Clark, where I'll be dealing it straight to you from entrepreneurs who have scaled and failed, investors who are passionate and seen it all, and leading tech voices that are looking to build moonshots to change the way we live. So hello everybody, and welcome back to another Frankly podcast with me, Tom Gray, the CTO at Launchpad. Great to see you all and talk to you all again. And as is becoming now, I think, rapidly a tradition, I am joined by another interesting member of the Launchpad ecosystem, this time not from the portfolio, but actually from BP. And today I'm joined by Karen Scarborough. Karen, could you introduce yourself? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm Karen Scarborough. I work for BP and the digital science and engineering team. And that team focuses a lot on innovation within BP and where we go with it. My categories are blockchain and cryptography primarily, and uh, a lot of other interesting topics And I'm sure we'll get into. (laughs) I'm sure we will. Let's counting on it. I'd love to know a little bit more actually about your background, how you came to be working in such an interesting area, if you don't mind, Karen. Sure. I have a bit of an odd path. I I have a degree in nuclear engineering, which is very exciting, but I ended up working in oil and gas supply chain, actually, to start with. I worked with some oil and gas service companies and got the opportunity to work overseas, and I worked within their procurement and strategic sourcing organizations primarily. And when I was working in those categories, the the 2014 oil crash resonated a lot of challenges basically within the industry and with how things worked. And that was when I first read about blockchain and started thinking on how a system like that might be able to put out the fires that I was fighting on a daily basis. And I was kind of itching to get back into more of engineering or mathematical role. So I actually took some time off my career and I learned how to program and Solidity, which is the smart contract language for Ethereum. And I later, after about a year's time, joined on with a company called Consensus which works primarily with public Ethereum networks. And I learned a lot about actually developing programs for that ecosystem and working with tokens. And at the end of about a year of that, I joined on with BP in the innovation group, got back to some of my nuclear roots and some categories of quantum that we have, but have more recently become intently focused on the world of blockchain and Uh, cryptography again. Brilliant. Thank you. And I probably said this before, but as you know, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with blockchain, if I'm honest. I kind of hate it, but I also kind of love it. And I also feel irresistibly drawn to it. And maybe a lot of other technical people feel the same. I guess as in reality, a lot of hype around blockchain and often a lot of companies just renaming themselves to, to blockchain something to try and boost their share price. But clearly there's a lot of real and very interesting and and genuine applications for that technology as well. And I guess as an expert in the subject, I'd just love for you to talk to us a little bit about that, Karen. What is, as somebody who really understands blockchain, what excites you about blockchain? What possibilities do you see that are real and tangible today? It's a good question. And the most exciting thing now 
is that we're finding out what blockchain can do, in particular public blockchains can do, that no other technology can really accomplish at this time. And that's exciting because we've tried to apply the technology in the past to many use cases that aren't really suitable and don't apply the necessary ROI for making it practical compared to other ways of doing things. And an enterprise in particular, it's been an interesting journey because most an audience probably know about blockchain starting off with Bitcoin and maybe something like Ethereum with smart contracts coming into play. And we had a few years of frame interest and in tracking and tracing and supply chain applications, which BP did a, a number of those to investigate the technology as well and its use cases. And there was a lot of thought to how the category would arise in a lot of different consortium formations in different industries that you would have a private blockchain for the energy operators, you would have a private blockchain for banking. And to the degree that that expectation was held several years ago, it really hasn't panned out like we thought it was going to. And when you look at the success of those consortiums, on average, less than one new member has joined these consortiums that private enterprises have built to date. So the consortium model thus far isn't working. It's not to say that some of that won't change in the future, but what it lends to is looking at what in the technology has made it that way, or is it the use case and or the technology? What, what exactly is it? And from a technology perspective, the tracking and tracing and supply chain management that people thought blockchain was going to be great for, it turns out that really isn't where blockchain shines. Blockchain is not meant to store a lot of data and it's not a excellent tool for, for tracking and tracing. There's lots of legacy technologies that, that do that better, but what's exciting is seeing the developments in the public blockchain space because there's certain applications that are being built right now that are lend more to people actually using them rather than the speculation which we've seen in previous years. So I'll, I'll pause there for for questions. Uh, I know I went through the, the enterprise route and started getting into public blockchains, but if there's any questions on the enterprise side, that might be helpful to go through before we dive into that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you talked a little bit about private and public blockchains. Could you maybe just expand a little bit more on what the differences are? What is a private blockchain versus a public blockchain? Sure. So in a private blockchain, the membership is restricted, essentially. So in a private blockchain, you may have a leader like BP or other major entities set it up and allow only certain people to participate or certain other enterprises to participate. Whereas in a public blockchain, participation is open to everyone. And that's on several different levels. And there's different ways you can participate in both private and public blockchains because what they both boil down to having is participation from a user level and then also a consensus level. So consensus is very important because what that refers to is how does the blockchain agree on the information that's included, quote unquote, within the chain? So you've probably seen in the news the designation of miners and miners being the ones in a blockchain that add a new block. 
And what's most important for miners to achieve is consensus as to what is going to be in a new block. So the methods of maintaining the integrity of miners is also different in private and public blockchains. In a private blockchain, because you assume and trust that the people that you add are going to be truthful as to what they want to add to a new block, you don't have to worry too much about incentivizing them to produce a correct block. And in most mechanisms, they use something that's called proof of authority, where as long as you're included as a minor or consensus participant in a private blockchain, we're mostly under the assumption that what you propose is going to be correct. But in a public blockchain, because it can be anybody participating in that consensus, you can have both good and bad miners, miners that want to add incorrect information and do things like for example, allocate themselves a thousand Bitcoin that they didn't have in the last block. So the way that the network protects against that is in order to produce a block, there has to be some kind of skin in the game. And what's happened in the past and what Bitcoin first developed was a proof of work system in which to be a miner, you had to demonstrate that you were invested in the network by solving this puzzle, they call it effectively. And in order to solve that puzzle, it required a large amount of computational power. So the assumption is that these miners, because they were spending so much money on the electricity and that was sort of their skin in the game to prove that they, they were willing to invest all this in equipment and hardware and power, then they're most likely going to produce a correct block. And should that happen elsewise, the others in the network who are also investing in their power and hardware would be incentivized to validate them and agree or disagree. That is one thing that has set public blockchains apart and been tremendously successful about them in that they're able to operate with both good and bad actors. What's happening now from a technology perspective is instead of working with proof of work, miners are transitioning in many blockchains such as Ethereum to proof of stake in which instead of using this computational power to produce a block, they actually lock collateral in a smart contract and that's used as their proof of skin in the game. So instead of solving this puzzle, the act of being chosen as a miner or winning the block is actually random. So now the protocol looks at all these different people who have staked collateral in a smart contract and says, okay, this one has their collateral up to date. They can produce the next block and randomly selects them. And what's really powerful about this is it can be done from fairly conventional hardware. It doesn't require the massive mining rigs that proof of work does. And it actually takes energy consumption of these blockchains down to 1% of what they've seen in the past. So that's a significant improvement and in many ways improves upon the security of the network as well because you allow it to be more decentralized because more participants can be included in the mining process. It's a really powerful time from a technology perspective right now in public blockchains, the, the developments that are happening. Thank you. I'm understanding, and hopefully others are understanding, when you talk about a public blockchain 
the participants in that blockchain presumably can be from completely different industries and could be presumably participating in that blockchain, therefore, for completely different reasons. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. A good example, Ethereum as a public blockchain has the largest applications built on top of it by far and the largest uh, amount of users. And you can see that there have been developments around financial tools. There's also more nascent developments around social networks. I'm sure most on the call of heard about the non-fungible token excitement as well and those different categories are all built on the same blockchain but what's powerful is as a participant you can be a participant in the ethereum blockchain and interact with all those different applications using the same account or, or wallet or identity or however you want to phrase it and another powerful component to include there just noting that not only do you have all of the different participants from different industries and categories and applications in the same place, what is significant as well is that you can build applications on top of each other with greater ease than existing platforms. So because you have the programmability of effectively money right now, in this system and smart contracts facilitating that the way a smart contract is intrinsically built the functions in it are an open api and that allows for other tools to interact more seamlessly than legacy systems where we had a lot of different backends that we had to connect because the data and the execution is all in this blockchain that everybody has access to, you can build a lot that amplifies value quicker. So a good example is if you have one application that uses a robust price oracle, then other applications can leverage that far more easily than in the past and not only have access to what is included in that API, but also build programmability as to value transfer that's executed based on that API as well. So that's really strong as well, because that we're all familiar with how powerful APIs are and how they've really obviously revolutionized a lot in our world today. And even if you look back at how the internet developed, they were a major aspect of what contributed to whole new business ideas in blockchain, although it, it's similar, but it's, it's nuanced. So it does bring about a lot more activity that you can do in this environment that you couldn't do necessarily as easily in other environments in the past. This is where I'm going to embarrass myself by not understanding. <laughs> but as I understand it, what we're saying then is that we're actually creating a transaction log, in effect, in the open, where you know the state of each transaction is effectively encoded or represented in the next transaction. But actually, each of those transactions might be submitted by completely different parties. And so, you know, what we're effectively saying is that we've got somebody who is, I guess, buying and selling digital cats. Their transactions are muddled up and irreparably and sort of irreversibly entwisted in the fate of transactions that relate to say cryptographic currencies that might relate to trading of some kind of the goods but i suppose therefore if that's right the power of that is incredible because you've got a whole bunch of people who are completely disinterested in interfering with each other's business who are effectively all validating each other's transactions i know that particular trading transaction is validated because this next block 
which was submitted by somebody completely different, is effectively recording and verifying and repudiating that transaction actually happened, even though they have nothing to do with my particular use case. Is that fair? Is that right, Karen? Yes, that's right. It brings up a good conversation, too, on how transactions work in public blockchains, because the one misconception I've heard people have is that people assume that one transaction means one new block added to the blockchain in some cases, but that's actually not the correct assumption because the blocks are more time-based than anything. So for example, in Bitcoin, there's one block every 10 minutes and in Ethereum, there's one block every 15 seconds. So it's time-based, but they're also size-based. The size of the block in Bitcoin remains pretty consistent, I believe. And then in Ethereum, how the size is determined, it's actually determined by what's called the, the gas limit. So gas is what is effectively the transaction fee in Ethereum. So when you want to send a transaction and buy, whether it's a digital cat or make a trade, you have to pay some amount of Ether to the miners to process your transaction. And the way that that's determined is effectively supply and demand. So when the network is really congested, the gas fees will and do go much higher. And when the network is calmer and there's not as many transactions, then the transaction fees do indeed go lower. And that inclusion of different types of transactions in the block is determined by who is willing to pay the most gas fees for their transaction to be included. So you may see traders have a far more significant interest in getting their trades included and willing to pay higher gas prices. Whereas if somebody's just trying to verify some non-financially applicable transaction that might have a, a lower gas fee associated with it. And what is interesting as well is how the communities have adapted around managing that gas and, and transaction fees because there's whole different types of incentivization models out there for figuring out what's the best way to manage this because in the long run, maintaining the network is really important to have miners incentivized to have users paying them a high enough transaction fee that the miners remain interested in participating, but you also have to have transaction fees low enough such that users actually use the platform. So you can actually see right now in Ethereum, the gas fees are pretty high, not strong for doing uh, a lot of the use cases that were more prominent probably two, three years ago because the gas fees are too high. But there's been different designs around, well, how can we optimize the gas here? Or what can we move to another system that baselines to Ethereum and has all the same liquidity as Ethereum, but uses a different mechanism for validating transactions. And so that really is part of the next iteration that's going to be exciting to watch about public blockchains is how now that some business cases have been validated, particularly in the categories of decentralized finance and how many new users you see on decentralized exchanges and lending, now that it's really expensive to use these, how are those teams going to go forward and optimizing their product? And that'll be something I think we should see throughout the rest of this year is solving and addressing that challenge. It's fascinating. So the system is effectively self-optimizing in many ways. 
And I suppose so really driven off of pure economics, right? The pure economic model incentivization to self-optimize this huge distributed system. Is that right? It is. And there, there's also optimizations to consider along the lines of for gas fees. One thing that's built in is that the more complex that your computation is, the higher your transaction cost will be because there is a base fee that things start at. So what it incentivizes is moving most of the complexity off chain and just keeping the very bare minimum of what's needed for secure value transfer on chain. And that helps in many ways because another challenge with blockchains is what they call state growth. And that's if the blockchain go continues to grow with more and more complex transactions than actually running a, what's called a node or mining node to connect to the blockchain, that growth of data size gets larger and larger. Like I can remember in 2018, the size of the Ethereum blockchain was uh, about a, a terabyte to run a node. And now if you want to run a full node, then that actually comes out to about six terabytes. But there's so much business models around this ecosystem that there's even been optimizations of that six terabyte scenario to be condensed down to a better platform that compresses it to 1.5 terabytes. And then even working off that, there's several people interested in building what are called light clients where they don't necessarily have the full blockchain, but have enough blocks to give you confidence with which to transact on and allow for a much lighter version of that node to be maintained so that you can connect to the blockchain that way. So it just goes to show whether it's transaction fees or storage or economic system design, there's a lot of business models built around the mm. public blockchain ecosystem itself. It's very multi-dimensional, much more than probably a lot of the news gives it credit for when they just get excited about a token. <laughs> I was going to say, I knew it was interesting, and I know a lot of very smart people are interested in it, but it's way, way more interesting and way, way more complicated than I'd ever given it credit for, if I'm completely honest, Karen. Yeah, one category I'd love to emphasize, too, is... Mm decentralized finance while we're here because that's a category that often gets wrapped up into a buzzword but people don't really think about the differences and what it means so that's exciting because when we talk about decentralized finance back in 2017 when the price of cryptocurrency was going crazy again there actually wasn't much you could do with your tokens but besides buy and sell them on a major platform like Coinbase. And those are centralized exchanges in that they hold your cryptocurrency for you. You don't have complete and total ownership of your wallet, which is absolutely a service needed in the ecosystem because there has to be some way to go from a, a dollar currency or a fiat currency to crypto. But at the same time, that doesn't really show the power of what actually working on a blockchain can do. So what's different this time is that there are far more applications actually built on the Ethereum blockchain itself. These systems for exchanging and lending, they actually didn't exist before in 2017. These are new. They were actually just getting deployed at the end of 2018. And the way you use these systems is directly from what's called a, a self-hosted wallet. And so that means as a user, you own entirely your private and public keys. There's still 
a tremendous amount of risk associated with that because if you do lose your private key, you lose your cryptocurrency, which is not great. But what it enables you to do is put your cryptocurrency assets in an application that you wouldn't have been able to participate in before. So a decentralized exchange and why it's different is it's built entirely in smart contracts. And the way it works is for that exchange to have liquidity for traders to trade against, you actually have users provide that liquidity. So you may put up something on the order of like equal amounts Ether and equal amounts US dollar coin, which is a staple token. And you would send that to the exchange as a liquidity provider and lock it in a smart contract. And you do that of the premise that as a liquidity provider, you're actually allocated a portion of the transaction fees. Against this liquidity, as a trader, you can come in and trade as against the smart contract for the new assets that you might be interested in getting or the new tokens or whatever it is. And why that's powerful is as far as market making goes, this is in a category of what they call automated market making because these smart contracts don't maintain an order book. The way they maintain pricing is by essentially a ratio of the assets, and they really use the market to balance the assets correctly such that the price is maintained fairly close to the centralized exchanges. And as far as activity goes, type of decentralized exchange platform there was less than 100,000 users at the beginning of 2020, and now there's almost 2.5 million users in this category. So as far as usership and how you would think of things from a startup perspective, I think you can validate that you have some users interested. The scaling of it, obviously financial platforms need to be a lot more powerful than just 2.5 million users. But for public blockchains in general, this is a huge interest because now we've seen things that users aren't just going to a platform and buying a token, they're actually using it. And the same can be said for some other lending platforms out there. So in the same way you can lock liquidity in a smart contract for an exchange, there's also opportunities to lock uh, collateral in a smart contract for a loan. And just as the smart contract maintains this ratio of pricing, the way it works in lending is the smart contract maintains an interest rate based on usage as well. So that's all built into this layer of what used to be centralized institutions, namely controlling and using, which, I mean, to, to their credit, I mean, most of this was in code before, but the way it's working on blockchain for this has actually shown a lot of efficiencies that can be achieved by doing it this way. So that's a major difference in how public blockchain has evolved is one, we have actual use cases that, that people are interested in actually using now. And the, the technology side has equally scaled and achieved certain levels of privacy as well. It's definitely not a category that has remained stagnant by any means. It's really grown in several different directions. And how, for people who are listening, who are less familiar with this, how are these sort of real-world assets or real-world transactions or even real world sets of data tied into the blockchain. You were saying that I think when I understood the original kind of naive approach as it were would be to put that data directly in the blockchain but that massively bloats the blockchain and creates a lot of work to therefore kind of mine and create subsequent blocks. 
So how are those connections nowadays made between a set of data that you're effectively asserting through um, a transaction on the blockchain back to the actual data itself? So keeping along the financial lines, that's another reason the decentralized exchanges have been so exciting to watch. Is they give you an on-chain price oracle. So because that pricing doesn't have to be taken in from a third party exchange off the blockchain, you can actually get real-time pricing on-chain in a smart contract. So that's been a huge win in many ways. And these price oracles, it can be said, whether it's on a centralized exchange or even on a blockchain, this is still a lot of untested categories. So I'm sure, as you can imagine, there's lots of ways, particularly for cryptocurrency, the, the price oracles can swing wildly and you may get one wildly off from another. But as far as how that dynamic has changed, getting information on-chain versus off-chain, the pricing being available on-chain has enabled a lot more. And as far as getting other information off-chain to validate what you can do on-chain, so for pricing, there is still many categories where pricing oracles are used, particularly for some of the platforms that are more concentrated on the development of derivatives for other assets outside of cryptocurrency. There's another component to it maybe non-financial data and because as well for something like processing insurance like you may not be looking specifically at financial data to determine whether or not an insurance claim may be viable to be paid out so you wouldn't necessarily want to put all that information on chain though of right. like Let's take the example of if there was a, a hurricane that came through Houston and your home was flooded, you'd want to be paid out in your insurance claim, but you definitely wouldn't want to put all that data to show that you needed your insurance claim paid out on a blockchain. But what there is a possibility of in the future is validating information through a category called uh, zero knowledge proofs, which is a category of cryptography that allows you to prove a computation succinctly. I think we should probably leave it there. This has been absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Thank you so much. I think my brain is possibly overheating, but in a really, really good way. So thank you so much for all of this and so much in knowledge and so much information and so much insight. I'm now certain I don't know much about blockchain, but I feel like I know a little bit more. And I think this has been therefore fascinating for me. And I think the possibility that you've shown me around what can be done with public blockchains and the ability to transact and to put all of this information in a secure way in the public domain in a way that it very, very, very hard, therefore, to repudiate because you're working across so many different parties is actually blown my mind. So all I can say is thank you so much, Karen. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Please do check out our website. It's launchpad.com. And hopefully see you all again soon. Thank you, everyone.